grandfathers until um, I was in high school, and one grandfather lived after that into college. But they were, they were both local, and they were both a really big part of my life. I don't know if you remember last week, we had a picture up there of us fishing. Um, one grandpa was my dad's side. He's the one that I went fishing with and did that kind of stuff with. And then my other grandpa on my mom's side was oftentimes one I played cards with. Uh, he would come to my sporting events. Uh, we, we ate out to dinner a lot together. But he was a really important part of my life. Did any of you have a real influential grandfather? Doug, you did? Yours, you still have one. That's awesome. Anybody else? No grandpas? All right. Well, my grandpa was awesome. And, um, you know, he was a very patient man. Um, sometimes he could be short with me, but that was probably because I deserved it. Um, but I remember one time we were fishing, and I had cast my line out. And um, did anyone here ever fish with the old Zebco fishing pole? The one where you push the button and you throw it out, you know, and then it all the, all the line is like inside of this housing. Remember that, Chris? Chris is nodding, yes. Okay. Jack, you don't know what I'm talking about? Okay. I didn't see you nodding, so I was making sure you're following along. Big nod. Thank you very much. So I had this Zebco pole, and my grandpa always told me not to fiddle with the thing, but man, I got to fiddling with that thing, and I somehow found a way to unscrew the little cover by, you know, accident, right? And so, man, I got that cover off, and there was a rat's nest of uh, fishing line. It just like, it was like a spring. I took that off, and it was like, and it just came, it kept coming. And there was no way, it was like, it was like a jack-in-the-box. Once it got out, it was, it was impossible to get back in. I'm trying to squash it in. So my grandpa didn't see me, so I, I got it back in and screwed it back on. What do you think I did then? I tried to cast it. And, of course, it was like, and Grandpa looks at me, he's like, what, what, what happened? I'm like, I, got, I guess I got you know, a, a snag there. He looks at me, he goes, okay. Well, let's look at the pole. And, and you know, it was obvious I had taken the thing off, and it was a rat's nest, and it was a big mess. And Grandpa said, he's like, you know, he's real patient. He said, well, let me help you. We can get it, you know, we'll untangle it. I said, no, no, I want to do it. I want to do it, right? I knew I caused it, so I wanted to do it, show Grandpa that I could fish on my own. And so... Um, he said, are you sure? Because it's real hard. So, yeah, I want to do it. So I remember I fiddled that thing for about 30 minutes, and I think I made it worse, as often happens when you mess with a rat's nest on a fishing pole. And so I had it, it was worse than before, and so my grandpa looked over and just kind of laughed at me. So we sat down, and he showed me how to kind of uh, patiently pull the line through and straighten it out. And about 20 minutes later, we had it all fixed and reeled it up. And... Um, and so we got it fixed up. And, and I was thinking about that today um, as I was getting ready for this sermon today about how oftentimes God gives us a pathway on which to walk. I've been talking about this pathway concept for the last couple weeks. And God's pathway is always good. His path is always, always, always the right path. How do we know that? Because of who God is. God is good. He's perfect. He's righteous. If he says something is supposed to be done a certain way, it's to be done that way, and to do it that way is always the best possible way to do it. So oftentimes, unfortunately, like, like I had done with my fishing line here, we, we see and know the path that God calls us to walk upon, right? 
But sometimes, I know y'all don't do this, but sometimes other people, they decide I want to go on this path, right? God's got a path for me. It goes right down here. But oftentimes we think, well, I've got a better path than that one, right? It goes this way. I like it better. It's prettier over here. It has more immediate um, effect on my life, and it seems it's better. But is our alternate path ever better than God's path? No, not ever. Because of the nature of God. If God says it so, then it is so. If this is the right way to go, this is always the right way. But the beauty of it is that even when we pick this pathway over here and deviate from God's direction from our life, He's patient and gracious and always provides a way back to His path. Isn't that amazing about God? I can walk on this path for three quarters of my life. And the Bible says that our God loves us, that, he's, um, that, that, he, uh, that he loves us, and he's always willing to, this is really hard to get off, okay, that he's always willing to accept the one who repents of his sin. And so when I repent and trust in the Lord, guess what? He finds a way for me to get back onto the righteous path. Right back where I need to go. That's our God. He's amazing and He's gracious. And I, and I wanted you to hear that because the text that we're going to get into today and next Sunday and maybe the Sunday after that are all about the corruption of mankind. Right? The, the, it, it, it's the kind of the escalation, the exponential escalation of our sin. And um, I wanted you to hear that to remind you that even in the midst of all that, and I'm going to show you this, even in the midst of humanity's lowest points, which would be like the fall in the garden, right? And now what I'm going to talk about today in, in Genesis chapter 6, our lowest points, we even see in the midst of those God's grace. So look at the text with me. It's Genesis 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8 tonight. This passage is called The Corruption of Mankind. I'm going to tell you, this is not an easy passage. Um, it's very difficult. It's difficult to interpret and um, difficult to apply, but we're going to do it tonight. Genesis chapter 6, beginning verse 1, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. What we see here, this comes on the heels of, of Seth's family line, you know, the, the godly line of people that loved and served God as opposed to the Canaanites who deviated from God's plan and now were living in opposition to God and his people. That God is blessing humanity. And he provides an avenue for us to multiply on the earth. This reminds us that God is faithful. You remember his promise to Adam and Eve that they would multiply and oversee or steward God's creation. Even though Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden and one whole branch of Adam's family line, that's Cain and his, his family line, aren't following the Lord, God is still faithful. And he fulfills his promise to Adam and Eve. 
That's an important fact for us to remember as we approach these next few chapters in the book of Genesis that describe the outpouring of God's wrath upon humanity. There's a pattern established in the first six chapters of Genesis. God is faithful and gracious while man falls short of God's standard of righteousness. God's gracious enablement for humanity to exponentially expand is accompanied by man's increased wickedness. This passage describes an event that Bible scholars have been unable to explain for centuries. Have you all read this passage before? The questions we have, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? And why was their marriage and procreation wrong? So, first we're going to answer, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? So let's look at the sons of God. The phrase, sons of God, is used 53 times in the Bible. We, re- we may remove all cases of son of God because those apply specifically to Jesus. So that's 43 times. We'll move those out of the way. Adam is referred to as the son of God in a genealogical sense. Um, because God literally created him one time. That means the Bible uses the phrase sons of God 11 times. Twice in this passage and three times in the Old Testament book of Job. All of this matters. Now after that, it's used once in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and it represents people who are in the family of God. It's used once in Luke chapter 20, verse 36, where it represents believers who go to heaven. It's used once in Romans 8, 14, where it represents those who follow the Holy Spirit. Once in Romans 8, 19, where it represents all Christians who will be revealed at the end of the age. It's used once in Galatians 3, 26, where it represents Christians who are God's children. So, when the phrase sons of God is used in the New Testament, it always refers to Christians. What about the usage of the phrase in the Old Testament? That's what has bearing on our interpretation tonight. We have two uses of it here in this passage and three usages in the Old Testament book of Job. Now, both of these passages are are difficult to interpret. There are three primary conclusions about the meaning of the phrase sons of God. First one is they are angels. The second is they are human judges or rulers. The third is they are descendants of Seth. Now, Bible-believing, born-again people believe each of those options. So this isn't something that should cause any kind of division in our church. I'm going to explain an argument for each of these, okay? And then I'm going to tell you what I believe. So number one, the first view, the sons of God mentioned here are, in fact, angels, eventually fallen angels. This view purports that the sons of God are angels who left their appointed realm in heaven and married and um, thus procreated with human women. Their unnatural sexual union produced Nephilim, which we'll read about a little bit, whose notorious deeds increased the wickedness prevalent on the earth at this time. It is assumed that the, in the earliest Jewish exegesis, also through the author Josephus 
and the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as the New Testament passages of 2 Peter 2.4, Jude 6 and 7, and the earliest Christian writers, Justin, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen, all believed in this particular view. This happens to be the view um, that's been held the longest in church history. That, that phrase, sons of God, are in fact fallen angels. Now, proponents of this view also refer to two other Old Testament and two New Testament passages to support it. Job 1.6 says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then Job 2.1, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Both passages indicate that the sons of God mentioned here are angels who have come to present themselves to the Lord. Several Old Testament passages indicate that God's heavenly host often gathered around his throne and presented themselves to him. If you're writing notes, you can see 1 Kings 22, Jeremiah 23 and 22, and Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. These passages describe this event. So proponents of this view believe that two New Testament passages, passages describe Genesis 6. They are this. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved to judgment. And then Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Thus, these angels who committed these heinous acts with women have been put into hell awaiting the day of God's judgment for their actions, which are described in Genesis chapter 6. Now, this view does have a couple weaknesses. At this point, Genesis does not discuss angels. Only Satan is mentioned thus far in the Word of God. This passage is concerned with humanity. So we look at the passage in the context of uh, the message here. <coughs> Excuse me. It's concerned with humanity and our wickedness that compelled God to judge the world. There's no biblical evidence that procreation is a trait of angels, but angels are able to take human form as they did and eat food as they did in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham hosted three angels outside of his tent. Angels, however, are spiritual beings, which we find in Hebrews 1, 7 and 14. Jesus asserts that angels do not have sexual relations like humans. He says that in Matthew 22, verse 30. So that's the first view. Now the second view, that sons of God are human judges or rulers. The word used in the phrase sons of God, that is translated God, that word in Hebrew is Elohim. Now, Elohim is used elsewhere in Scripture and in the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 82.1 and 82.6, to refer to rulers. So not just, doesn't, isn't just translated God, it can also be translated rulers. And these rulers that are mentioned were polygamous warriors uh, who acquired large harems by coercion. They produced children and generation, generations of fierce warriors known for their cruel tyranny. These rulers probably came from uh, Cain's family line, which founded city organization, polygamy, and violent tyranny. 
Now, this particular uh, view also has a couple weaknesses. This interpretation relies on an obscure interpretation of the word Elohim. I think it's a stretch. Polygamy and coercion are referred to in this view and not directly mentioned in the passage, so I think they're reading into the text. Now, the third view is that the sons of God are godly men from the line of Seth as opposed to Cain. This view describes how Seth's and Cain's family lines intermarried, which results in a community of unprecedented wickedness. Now, this interpretation fits well in the context of this passage, which describes Seth's family line and doesn't end until Noah's death in Genesis 9.29. So it's kind of wrapped inside of Seth through Noah. The phrase sons of God may also be interpreted as godly sons, which would be a proper description of the Sethites. The Old Testament often refers to Israelites as the children of God. Deuteronomy 14, Exodus 4, Psalm 73, and Psalm 80. This might not be an appropriate conclusion because of God's covenant, however, which doesn't happen, has not been instituted yet in this part of the Word of God. It's much later when he calls out Abram. And then, um, let's talk for a second about the daughters of man. So, you have the sons of God. The way that you interpret that phrase is also going to influence how you interpret the daughters of man. If the sons of God are fallen angels, then the daughters of man are, are women. Any human being, any female human beings. If the sons of God are tyrannical rulers, then the daughters of men could be really any women. If the sons of God are the Sethites, then the daughters of men would be the Canaanites, showing an intermarriage. So the question is, which one do I believe? Well, I believe the sons of God in this particular passage are fallen angels, and the daughters of men are the women with which they procreated. When we consider this phrase used in the context here, um, and we, we consider that and, and investigate that along with Job 1.6 and 2.1, interpreting it similar in Genesis 6 seems the most appropriate. So why I like that is because we're using the Bible to interpret the Bible. So the way the phrase is used in another Old Testament passage would be the same way that it's used in this Old Testament passage. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that one is a better view. Godly and wise men and women of God believe this view since the inception of the church. So we have thousands of years of church history of leaders, people that love and follow God, that were trusted by the church that also believe that. And I would say the most glaring weakness is that angels are spiritual beings um, who can't or are not reported to have been procreating with women. But later in, in the book of Genesis, we see them taking human form and eating with Abram. So they can take a physical form and they can ingest food. So there's no reason to think they couldn't do other things. And we also see, if you look and make a note, in Revelation chapter 9, the fallen angels that are in the pit of hell are released for a season. And they're released, they become hybrid locust scorpions with human faces and teeth like lions. So they come out of this bottomless pit and they have physical form. And they're able to, uh, they're able to harm people physically. So it is obvious that they can take physical form and take on human traits and characteristics. 
And so I would, I personally would take the first view that they're fallen angels, and um, which had come down and left their appointed position and procreated with um, human females. Now, why is their marriage and procreation wrong? Well, it wasn't God's plan for angels to procreate with humans. Jude 6 tells us why it's wrong. It says, And angels did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so the reason why it's wrong is because God set the path. God had appointed angels for a very specific purpose in his creation. They thwarted that purpose and procreated with women, and they produced Nephilim. And we'll talk about those again in in a few minutes. So let's move on to verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So just when we got over that hump, now we got to sort out this issue. What is meant by 120 years? There's two predominant views about this. One view states that the consequence of humanity's exponentially increased wickedness and the procreation of fallen angels with women is the decreasing of the longevity of human life. So, pre-flood, people are living like eight, nine hundred years, right? And then God makes this pronouncement. People of this view would say that, okay, God just basically said that People are so bad, they shouldn't be living on this earth for 900 years. I'm going to decrease their life to 120 years. Now, the decreased life view has its own flaws. Um, when you read it, it's, um, you know, it seems to make sense. And I would even almost say, like, when you read it just first time, <clears throat> it's like, okay. And that seems to make sense in our own experience, right? I mean, I don't know anybody that lived past 120 years, but... There is a, an obstacle to that because God made that pronouncement in Genesis chapter 6. Well after that period in history, Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob, 147. After the time of Jacob, then the longest living include J- uh, Joseph, who lived to be 110, Moses, 120, Joshua, 110, and Aaron lived 123. So if, if God at that point said, I'm going to decrease their life, the lifespan of a human being, to 120. Why did all these people live past 120? That's the struggle. So the proponents of this view believe that God said that and then had grace and sort of like slowly kind of enacted that. So that's that view. I don't believe that's true. I think that what God was saying in in this part of the text was that he was going to flood the earth in 120 years. This fits better in the context of the passage. Where are we at? Genesis 6. What happens next? The flood. The flood didn't just happen. There was a period of time in between when God said this and when the flood happened. This passage describes the state of all of humanity. God is saddened by the sum total of mankind's wickedness. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Limiting the age of each person wouldn't really influence the collective wickedness of the earth, but pouring out God's wrath upon the earth immediately would influence the collective wickedness of the earth. So this is an issue dealing with the long-suffering nature of God in the midst of His wrath. 
we should ask, what did God do after he declares his days shall be 120 years? So to answer the question, to make it clear, how, how do we interpret that passage? Let's look at what God did next. Did God decrease the lifespan of all humans to 120 years? No. People lived well after that. God did, shortly after that, send a worldwide flood that destroyed the world and almost all of humanity. He did do that. We know that fact. We don't have a timeline recorded in Scripture describing when God did this, when God said this, and when he sent the flood. But the passage of 120 years certainly would have fit in the context and the timeline we have in Scripture of Noah's life. Look at verse 4. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, uh, who were of old, men of renown. So it's interesting that the word Nephilim also has its own unique translation issues. So, you know, what's really funny is, you know, when I, when I prepare a sermon, I use several uh, different, you know, texts in addition to studying the original language to, to exegete the meaning of the text and to be able to apply it to our lives. And I have, you know, three or four critical commentaries that I read over. And what's really funny is all the ones I read, Genesis chapter 6, the introduction for verses 1 through 8, this is probably one of the most difficult texts to teach. And I'm like, oh, here we go. So it took me a long time. <clears throat> I thought it was very interesting. So we're on now the, the third difficult thing for us to interpret. The name Nephilim is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. So it's not like there's a Hebrew word that they translated into the word Nephilim. That's, that's if you were to say the word in Hebrew, that's how it would sound. That's a Hebrew word, Nephilim. It comes from the phrase fallen ones. Don't you think that's very interesting? It can also be translated into the word giants. So if, if they're not using it as a proper noun, they just use the, the it translated, it's translated into the word giants. Now that's important to remember because the word Nephilim is mentioned in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33 which is very interesting because all the Nephilim who would have been alive before the flood would have died in the flood. So how could they be also mentioned in Numbers 13, 33? That's easy for us to answer. In Numbers 13, 33, the Israelites had sent spies into the promised land to tell them what it was like. And the spies came back and, and right there were two righteous men who said, you know, we can do this. This is God who gave this to us, and we're going to do it. Joshua and Caleb, right? What did the other one say? Oh, we can't go there. The place is full of Nephilim. Now, we know that Nephilim wouldn't have still been alive, and their family line wouldn't have carried through the flood because they would have died. So that word there is interpreted giants. There's giants in the land. They're huge. We can't go in there. So that word was used by the Hebrew spies to scare the Israelites. They, didn't want, they were afraid to go to the land, so they used a word that would strike fear into the people. There's Nephilim over there. We can't go into the promised land. Unfortunately, they won the day, but eventually they did go and take the promised land. So I think the Nephilim here in this passage in Genesis 6, 
are the um, offspring of the fallen angels that procreated with women. Now, what in the world does this have to do with you and me, right? This is the Word of God, so this can be applied to our lives. The truth is, what I see here is that deviating from God's path is always wrong. We talked about that in the introduction. He set a path for us, and that path, even if it's not straight or appears to be the best way to go, because of God's nature as our Creator, as being perfect and loving and good, the path that He has for us is always the right path. <clears throat> Sometimes in life, the right path and uh, alternative path are hard to figure out, right? Do you ever find yourself in life trying to sort out between two decisions and you don't really know what to do? That happened to me once. Darlene's going to laugh about this because I'm sure she'll remember. Me and my buddy Rick went canoeing. And um, we, I'm, I'm a Yankee from Iowa, and he grew up in St. Pete. So I think he probably should have known better, but we are out in an area that, that was saltwater, so it was affected by tides. And we are kind of these backwaters. So we decided to go canoeing. And we go out, and we canoe for about an hour. Well, we get out where we're going, and we notice, you know, it's starting to get dark, so we need to come back. Well, we decided to come back, and, and we had the way that we came, and then we have a way that looks like a shortcut. Well, we decide, you know, let's take the shortcut. This is like cuts the island in half. We won't have to go as far. Well, guess what happened while we were out for that hour? The tide changed. Have you all ever been out somewhere when the tide changed? Mr. Ed, she's Miss Ben's poking at you, just so you know. In case you couldn't see her. I just wanted to make sure you saw that. So we get out there and, and we start coming back. Well, the, it like the water le left that place in like 20 minutes. So when you're in backwater and the tide changes and all the water goes away, you know what you're left with? Muck. Y'all ever, anybody in here ever been stuck in muck before? You can't just walk on it. It's like a, a stinky quicksand. Right? You push your feet and they just go down. So me and Rick, taking our shortcut that took us an extra two hours, um, we had to crawl on our bellies and drag the canoe. And I've never been so happy to get to a body of water in my life. I'm like, finally, water, we can float. And we did make it back to our campsite. But the path that we took uh, made us stinky and took away all our energy and it took us away from the right path. And that's kind of what happens when we deviate from God's path, isn't it? It kind of makes us stinky. It covers us with our sin. It separates us from God. It's never easier. Even if it's easier for the short term and the long term, sin is never good for us because God didn't design us that way. That's why God gave us a righteous path. And so even we can see here, as, as humanity's corruption increased, by God's grace, we have an opportunity through Jesus not to be corrupted to walk on the righteous path. All right, so let me give you the next half here. We're going to talk about the reason for the flood. It says, verse 5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Verse 5 is a horrific description of the state of humanity. Think about this. Just a few generations after the fall. <coughs> Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Think of the collective wickedness of mankind for, for Moses to write this, this truth about us. God's creation has moved very far away from its original state of being very good. Just a few generations before, they were in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin. Mankind was in this perfect relationship with God. Everything was perfect. Now, instead of life, there was death. Instead of walking with God, man was continually sinning against God. At the very core of humanity's existence is the continual cultivation of evil. Wickedness, wrongdoing, harm, and perversion of all that is good, complete and total deviation from God's will are the words that describe humanity at this point in time. Folks, that's really, really bad. Verse 6 continues, The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. Are, I'm not, are you surprised by that? And He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it's interesting. Man caused God to experience two feelings, sorrow and grief. The word sorrow indicates that the Lord regretted his creation of man. That's really interesting because God knows all things. He's omniscient, right? So when God created the world and everything in it, He knew exactly what would happen. He knew what man would do. He, he knew that what is being described in Genesis, Genesis 6, He knew that that would happen. And still He did it. And still, in this moment, God feels sorrow and regret. That tells us something about God that even though he knows what will happen, there's still a point in time when he experiences what is happening. What does that have to do with you and I? It tells us how gracious God really is. That he created us knowing what we would do. That he loves us in the midst of our sin. God created us knowing that we would cause him sorrow. But ultimately, whether a person receives God's grace or his judgment, God receives glory, which is the ultimate good and purpose for all people. God also felt grief as a result of what was happening. Now, the word grief indicates that the Lord felt pain because of the rampant wickedness within man. This is a legitimate emotional pain. Have you ever had somebody, another person, cause you to have pain? Like real deep, deep grief inside of your heart? This is what God's feeling. This is a legitimate pain. He's not above our experiences. Our sin causes him grief. Now, in response to this passage, Matthews writes something. He says, God's response to grief over the making of humanity, however, is not remorse and a sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. I think what he's trying to say there, 
would be the, the grief I've seen in a parent or a grandparent when they have a wayward son or daughter kind of go off in a direction far away from the Lord. You know, one whom you've raised in the church, one whom you've trained and shown the love of God, who's made a choice to live ungodly life. That's kind of what, what he's describing here. By reoccurring reference to mankind, the passage focuses on the source <coughs> of his grief. God is grieving because the sinful man is not the pristine mankind whom he has made to bear his image. The intensity of the pain is demonstrated by the use of the word Nahem, Nahem, elsewhere in Genesis, where it describes mourning over the loss of a family member due to death. But his is not regret over destroying humanity. Paradoxically, so foul has become mankind that this is the necessary step to salvage him. Listen, that's important. Destroying mankind, all but Noah, was the necessary step to salvage mankind. Acknowledging the passability or the motions of God does not diminish the immutability of his promissory purposes. As often there is when we learn about our sin and God's wrath, there is a glimmer of hope. A portion of grace that God is prepared to pour out, and we find that in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's like one of those movies where everything's going wrong, and you're not sure how we're going to get through this, and it looks like everything's done for. And then you see that one character who has a chance to make everything right. In this text, the one who will receive the grace of God is Noah. Not all is lost. One man lives on the earth who loves God. His name is Noah. God extends his grace upon Noah, who's a righteous man. Now we're going to talk about Noah a little bit more next week. So let me conclude with this. I want to invite Brandon and Miss Bim up to the front for our invitation song. We really learned two things as a result of this text. Number one, God's righteous path is always the right way to go. Always. What God's Word communicates to us and the way He wants us to live his desire for us to live a righteous life is always the best way to live. Always. Number two, praise God for this. Even when we fall, even when we fail, even when we fall short of the glory of God, our Heavenly Father is always prepared to receive the repentant sinner. He's a gracious God, and He is so good, so, so good to us. We're going to have a time now to uh, worship the Lord and respond to what you've heard today. <clears throat> I just want to close in prayer, and then we'll sing this song, and then and we'll be all finished for tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you've given to us to worship you. It's so devastating to see how far mankind fell away from you and your intended purpose for us. But we're so thankful to you for the grace that we receive through Jesus, our Lord. 
Thank you for always being ready to receive the repentant sinner. Oh Lord, that we would be quick to repent and quick to receive your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand as we sing.